one is buying our stuff. It's still early. We need to get out there and mingle with people. You think so? They don't know what all they're missing. I'm do a couple of laps. I'm getting up. You know what I like about this one? I uh, feel bad about myself. I just mosey on up. I look into Jesus' eyes and I apologize. I'm, I'm sorry, Jesus. Give her a go. Tell him you're sorry. Um, Aren't you, tell him you're sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. There you go. Don't you feel good? Feels nice, doesn't it? Inside. Hallelujah. For just $3, Jesus can be your greatest fan. You ever seen this beautiful man? Went to his conference. He slapped me. Hard. So many people just forget about that. But this right here just reminds us that Christmas morning is the day that our Savior was born. This one's for faith on the edge. And uh, I want you to go ahead, get the word out, because that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about leading from the sandbox. That's also what I'm talking about. This house right here is almost an exact replica of the home that Jesus has made in my heart. You, you can put it in the backseat of your car. It'll keep your kids quiet. Just open up the door and let him in. Do you want to talk about Jesus? My buddy made this one. Pretty convicting stuff, am I right? The only thing hotter than this coffee is eternal hellfire. No! <laughs> one time I sent him $800. Still don't have the bird flu. Santa was there on his knees in worship. You know who else likes sports? Jesus. Three-pointers from the paint, going hard, home runs, holes in one. All of it. All you got to do is pray, my man. All you got to do is pray. All you got to do is pray. You know why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Any luck? No. I just don't get it. Isn't anyone interested in the gospel? Jesus did say we'd be persecuted for his namesake. Hey, Jesus selfies are a dollar. Cheapskate. What are you gonna do? How are we doing, Southwest? It's good to be with you today. We're starting a new series today, and we're doing it from the Southwest campus back to B Cave. I want to say good morning to the B Cave campus, Buildings A and Building D. It's great to see you guys. Great to be here. Two year anniversary today. Two years for Southwest campus. So I am thrilled to be with you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans, Romans chapter 7. I know some of you may just turn to Matthew as a knee jerk, but we're going to start with Romans uh, today. We put that video together, and many of you are laughing. Some of you are going, I don't know, is it okay for me to laugh at this? Um, I really do think that to the unchurched world, the gospel is so confusing. And I think in in a big way, what makes the gospel so confusing are Christians, not just our lives, but the way we kind of push the gospel in certain ways, or maybe the way we don't push the gospel in certain ways. I think in, in a lot of ways, the gospel to an unchurched person is kind of a joke. And, and they kind of look at us as this 
weird concoction of people with this little religious belief that kind of sit in the corners together and we do weird things like we hold hands and we pray and we close our eyes and like I said a few weeks ago we'd give the Christian squeeze when we're done and you know we just kind of do all these little things. Well I, I, I'm so excited about doing Romans 8 with you because I thought we need to spend some time this summer focusing on what the gospel is. Just pure gospel and that's how we came up with the title just pure gospel and and even in light of the supreme court ruling uh which by the way i'm much more concerned about god's ruling than the supreme court ruling but we had a supreme court ruling a couple of weeks ago and i wrote a letter uh this week to our body many of you may receive that letter if not they're in the in the connections desk four years of each building you can pick a hard copy up you can go to austinridge.org go to the blog button and you can read that letter but people keep asking me what are we going to do what are we going to do what's austinridge going to do we're going to do what we always do. We're going to teach the word. We're going to love people like crazy. And we're going to pray. We're going to stand in this culture on truth. And we're going to be Christian. And that means doing it with great grace and great mercy and great winsomeness. But also without compromising the truth. Doing that in a way that the gospel is attractive to people. Um, one of the points I made in the letter is that judgment is never an evangelistic tool that works. Okay? So we've got to understand what works in this culture. What works in this culture is consistent care and love. Our job is not judgment. Our job is faithfulness. God will handle the judgment side. Our job is to be faithful. And that's what we're going to do as a church. I think this series is coming at a great time with what is happening in our country as well. So Romans chapter 8, this is, um, there's been so much said about this chapter in our Bible. Um, one commentator said that if the Bible is a ring that God gives us as part of his devotion and commitment to us, like a wedding ring, then Romans is the center cut diamond. It's the center carrot, if you will. And if that's true, then Romans chapter eight is the high gleam from that center uh, stone. Uh, one early church father used to have Romans eight read to him aloud every week just to try to digest the truths of Romans 8. J.I. Packer, uh, a great teacher and writer, said, when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there's no telling what may happen. And I want to share a quote with you from one of my heroes, Martin Luther, the great reformer. Here's what Martin Luther said about Romans. He said, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel it is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on the letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. It's an incredible chapter. Just like I did with Sermon on the Mount, I want to encourage you to at least one day a week take Romans 8 and just meditate and read through Romans 8. Let this chapter saturate your heart uh better yet read through the book of romans every week over the next eight weeks it is the as one person said the crown jewel of the epistles the whole thrust of the bible i believe is the sinfulness of man and the redemption of a savior that will come and romans is the letter that lays this out and unlike anything else in our bibles this book takes you from being sinful and doomed and condemned to being secure in jesus uh, many of us grew up playing the game called tag and in tag you always have a home base okay that home base is where you're safe uh, Romans chapter 8 is the home base for the Christian this is where you and I are safe this is the security of the believer I know some of you grew up um, maybe in West Texas or in the deep south like I did maybe you grew up going to church of God uh, church of the cross church of Christ or if you're in West the church of Christ 
maybe you grew up in some of these churches and some of you may have grown up thinking that the gospel means you have to do and obey everything God teaches you and it's just kind of a duty. And, and once you get out of line, God's job is to kind of sit there and whack you when you get out of line. And so the gospel is not something of joy and gratitude. The gospel seems more like a burden, more like uh, God's keeping a score pad and I got to make sure I score high enough uh, to get into heaven. Matter of fact, I'll say this. I think most church attenders in America do not understand the gospel whatsoever. I believe most church attenders in America, if you ask, what is the pure gospel of the Bible? They would give you a spiritual resume answer. You try to do the best you can. You try to be a good person. You kind of hope the good outweighs the bad. And you hope when you get to heaven, you catch God in a good mood. And you hope you kind of get in. I don't care if I get in boldly or by the skin of my teeth. I just want to get in. And we kind of have this view of this good outweighing the bad. The problem is, with that, who, who sets the rules? Because you and I tend to think, well, as long as we're better than Steve, Joe, and Bill, and Sarah at work, then we're kind of okay. We're kind of in compared to everybody else. And the Bible has a very different view about the gospel. Let me kind of lay out Romans for you as a whole. Romans chapters 1 through 7 is basically about doctrine, okay? Doctrine is how should you think so you'll know how to live, all right? And then chapters 9 through 11 is, is the national section for the Jewish people. It's about the nation of Israel. And then chapters 12 through 16 is the practical application of the book of Romans. That's why when you get to Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, my brother, in view of God's mercies, all the things he talked about in the last 11 chapters, I urge you to lay your life down as a holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship. And then he says in Romans 12, 2, which is really the first real command of Romans, he says, I ask you not to conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you'll be able to know and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. But this chapter 8 kind of sits in the middle of the doctrinal, the national, and the practical, and you've got this jewel between instruction to the Christian, the Jew, and the nation. You've got this jewel in chapter 8 that just kind of lays out a letter. I, I look at it as a love letter from our Father. That's what Romans 8 feels to me. It's just a love letter of how secure we are and how much God loves us and what's true of us, which also leads us to understand what's not true of us. So I hope that this, this series for the next eight weeks will unlock some of your maybe bad theological teaching at church growing up if you had some. I hope this will free you to be a Christian who walks in confidence, not because of you, but because of Christ. And because of who Christ is and what he's done. So to get the context of chapter 8, let's go back to the end of chapter 7 and kind of get a running start uh, into chapter 8. I'm going to go in, in chapter 7, verse 21. Paul says, So I find it to be a law, that, that Greek word nomos literally means principle or something that cannot be changed. It's, it's stationary. I find it to be a law that when I want to do a right... Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner man, but I see in my members another law raging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So Paul restates a problem that he's already talked about early in chapter 7 is that I find myself inside wanting to please God. I believe the word of God. I believe he is who he said he is. I want to please him. I want to honor him. But he says there's 
this force inside of me. He talks about the force early in Romans being the old man or the old nature or the flesh or the sinful nature. This force inside of me that even though in my mind and even in my heart I want to please him, there's parts of my body, mainly the flesh, that wants to go the opposite way. Maybe you've experienced that before. You want to do what's right, and you end up doing the very thing you don't want to do. And there seems like this overwhelming power in what Paul calls the members of our body that sometimes just seems to take over. Maybe someone has said like this, I, it wasn't me who did that. It's like some other force took my body over. Evil is present within me, the one who wishes to do good. Can we all agree with this? That sometimes I don't do the things I want to do, and the things I don't want to do, as Paul says, I end up doing. And then look again there at verse 22. He says, I see my members, verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner man. That means you listen to sermons like when I preach, and you're like, amen, you're taking notes. Preach it. I agree. Yes. Great message. Love it. Teach it. And then you go out, and Monday you start doing stupid things. And you're like, why do I do these things? Why do I still struggle with the things I struggled with when I was in middle school and high school and college? Why are the same things tripping me up? And he says in verse 23, why? I see my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive. Basically, your body, you could say biblically, has enslaved your ability to please God. There's something called the flesh And there's a law of the flesh, there's a law of the flesh, and there's a law of the spirit. And these two laws combat each other. And here's the bad news. The bad news is you're going to have this struggle until you get a glorified body. You're going to have this struggle until you die. The good news is when you become a believer in Christ and the Holy Spirit of God fills you and empowers you and equips you, you now have an option you didn't have before. Pastor, what do you mean? Before I was a Christian... These things that my flesh wanted to do did not bother me. Matter of fact, I enjoyed doing those things. And if my flesh told me to do something, I would do it. There was never a sense of I shouldn't do it. I wanted to do it and I did it and I enjoyed it. When you become a Christian, the Spirit of God gives you a new option that you and I didn't have before. You now have the option not to sin. You had to do what your flesh called you to do before. Now you have an option that you didn't have before folks that's why i put a point in the letter that i sent you is that we need to stop assuming or thinking non-christians should act like christians non-christians can only do one thing and be one thing non-christian why do we think they should have the same morals and the same behaviors and the same views of marriage and the same views of sexuality as those who claim to follow christ they don't and they're not going to and we shouldn't expect them to so there's this war inside of us There's something inside my body that wants to balk at God. I want to bow up on God. I want to slander. I want to gossip. I want to lust. I want to be greedy. I want to manipulate. And this battle keeps going on inside of me. There's a law of God and a law of sin. Until you get your new body, when you get your new body, you're going to have complete compliance with God. Isn't that going to be great? My favorite part when I think about heaven is not sinning anymore. That's my favorite part of heaven. And and the reason they say in heaven there'll be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more death is because sin's not there. Sin is what brings every problem into your life and into my life. Sin is what causes the pain of the heart. It's not just a random life. 
It's sin, and sin is in us. And look at verse 24 after he realizes what I just said. Wretched man that I am. Now, wait a minute. This is the guy who wrote what you and I have for quiet times in the morning. This is the guy who, outside of Jesus, seems to be the biggest stud in the Bible. And he says, wretched man that I am. Look what he says after that. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Here's why I think that you and I struggle with the gospel. Because you and I really don't think we're wretched. We really don't think we're that bad. We think we're pretty good compared to most people around us. The problem is, on Judgment Day, we will not be compared to most people around us. We will be compared to the perfection of Christ. Wretched man that I am. How will you stack up against Christ? How have you done keeping the 615 random laws of the Old Testament known as the law of God? If you haven't kept everyone perfectly continuously your entire life, you are now filled with sin. You can't take water and cyanide and put a drop in and say, I'll drink around the cyanide. It's all poisonous at that point. And that's exactly the picture the body gives us about what Paul says, this body of sin in death. Three things Paul says here I want you to get. Number one, wretched man that I am. See, before I became a believer, I didn't think that. Now that I become closer to God, as I get closer to God, as I get more mature in my faith, I start realizing how sinful my heart really is. How do you know you're maturing Christ? You realize you're junk. How do you know you're getting closer? Because you look worse and he looks better. Paul says, wretched man that I am. Number two, He says, I need to be delivered. Who will deliver me from this body of sin? I need a Savior. I need a Savior that can't be found within myself. I can't be religious enough. I can't be moral enough. I can't find the right pathway to the right top of the hill. I need something outside that's going to deliver me from this. And number three, he says, my body left as is will be a body of death. Whether you have passive indifference to God or aggressive intent against God... Paul says the result is going to be death. The body says the wages of sin is what? Death. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here in Romans. So the question just kind of hangs there. Who will deliver me? He gets, aren't you glad Romans doesn't end with chapter 7? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Look at verse 25. Look what he says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You guys should be cheering right now. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He says, who will deliver me? Jesus. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul says, great news. We have a Savior, not inside of us, but outside of us. He can pull off what I can never pull off. He's perfect. I can't be perfect. We're all good. But until we get a glorified body, this battle is going to keep raging inside of us. So you got to fight this battle well. Who will deliver me? Paul cries out, Jesus. Jesus says this, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. How do we say no to sin in the flesh? How do we, as Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin, reckon yourselves dead to sin? How do we go through life without giving in the flesh? You get real close and real tight with Jesus on a daily basis. How do you fight against this power called the flesh? 
You get in your word and you get you a cup of Christian crack coffee. You get you a cup of something, whatever you're addicted to, and you get you a pen and you get you a notebook and you just start pouring through his word. And you go to his word not as a pretty good guy who needs to get a little better. You go to his word saying, I am a wretched person. And if I don't spend time with you, I can't make it through today. Lord, help me. I need a savior today. And you start pouring through his word. You start applying the truth. You get in our men's studies, our women's studies. You come to church. You worship. You apply the messages. You give. You serve. Because we've got this war going on inside of our bodies. And just because you're a Christian doesn't mean the war stops. If anything, when you become a Christian, you've got a bullseye on your life. And the war gets harder. The things that used to not bother you now start bothering you. They start to disgust you. And you find this battle that was never there before. That's why when someone comes to Christ, I never tell them, oh, you're good. It's all going to be easy now. I'm going to say, you know what? Button, button down the hatches. Put the seatbelt on. It's going to get a lot harder before it gets better. It's not going to get better, church, until we get to heaven. All right? So let's just get past this Christian view of utopia. Is why all these bad things happen in the world. Bad things are happening in the world because sinful people are in the world, including us. People get hurt because of us. People get wounded relationally because of us. Divorces happen because of us. Greediness happens because of us. We don't put our hope in who's in the White House, folks. We put our hope in who's on the throne. We don't put our hope on who's in power. We put our hope who's in power. Are you following me? So turn the Fox News off and open Romans. Paul cries out and he says, who will deliver me? Faith is the empty hands of the soul. Faith is the empty hands of the soul. Faith is crying out to the one who will deliver you from this wretchedness that you and I live in every day. This newness of life. Who's going to set us free? So what's our position biblically? We're in Christ. What's the problem? We have this thing called sin. What's the power? The grace that comes through the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my mind, and yet this blasted battle inside of me every day. You ever think of Paul struggling with lust every day? You ever think of, of Peter struggling to be selfish? Well, we might can get Peter because he mouth insert foot all the time. But you consider these heroes of the faith. John Calvin struggled with sin every day. Martin Luther struggled with sin every day. Your pastor... Struggles with sin every day, and so do you. And I can't wait till that struggle ends. We're freed from the penalty of sin because of the cross, and one day we'll be freed from the presence of sin. Amen? And that's why we'll have no more tears and no, no more sorrow and no more death. Okay, there's your introduction for chapter 8. Let's go to chapter 8. Verse 1. My favorite verse maybe in the Bible. I've said that 8,000 times, but this really is one of my favorites. Look at it. There is therefore, say it with me, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? There is therefore, when you see the word therefore, that's one of your markers when you're studying your Bible. Always look to see why it's there. What's it there for? Based on chapters 1 through 7, doctrine, in chapter 7, this wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? I, I keep having this battle Praise be to Jesus Christ. He is my deliverer. Therefore, chapter 8 starts the love letter. Therefore, you and I have now no condemnation. Amen? No condemnation. That word condemnation is a legal term that's not just your sentencing, but it's actually the carrying out of your sentencing as well. 
And, and the magic word there for me is now. Folks, this is not just heaven talk. This is earth talk. This is not just one day we'll have no condemnation. Today, July 5th, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. When the accuser accuses you before the throne, nothing sticks. He'll say, you see that servant Brad, you know, he claims to love you. He even preaches to people. But you see him struggle on Tuesday? And he throws that accusation and Jesus looks and says, I see no condemnation. I paid for that sin already. My son is my son. He is everything that I am. My victory is his victory. When I rose from the dead, he rose from the dead. When sin was taken care of on the cross, it was his sin that was taken care of on the cross. Church, are you following me? There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Here's what else this frees you and up from, you and I up from. You don't have to strive to earn God's love so that he will let you into heaven. What I just described describes every other religion in the world. Hinduism, you can go, or Hinduism, you can go on the eightfold path and hope that by keeping this path that when you die, God's in a good mood. Buddhism, you hope that your good karma outweighs the bad karma and you can be reincarnated. If you were an antelope this time, you come back as a tiger. If you're a good tiger, you can come back as a, as a monkey. If you're a good monkey, you can come back as whatever. And you just kind of keep working your way up. We call that biblically self-righteousness. Okay? Me trying to be good enough to get into heaven. Every, relation, every religion in the world is self-righteousness. Mormonism, just try to be as good as you can, and then you'll get to inherit a, a planet one day. That's a pretty good gig, right? So that's why they work. That's why they get on their bikes. That's why they wear the white shirts, because they are trying to earn God's favor. It is self-righteousness. But here's the beauty of the pure gospel. It's Jesus plus what? Nothing. But you have, it's Jesus. But what about, it's Jesus. It's Jesus plus nothing. That's the pure gospel. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. It's playing tag. We're on, we're on home base. Romans 8.1 is our home base. Some of you grew up maybe with a Catholic background. Where you had to confess your sin weekly and repent of it. And you need to make sure you're all fessed up if you were to die. And if you were to die still in your sin, you'd have to pay for that sin after the grave. Folks, let me tell you something. If you believe that religiously, you have just ripped the guts out of the gospel. First of all, there is no man on this planet that can give you a forgiveness of a sin. Okay? Jesus Christ has already forgiven you for your sins. It's a mockery of the cross to say, I've got to confess to this dude, and he'll say, okay, you're all good, and we kind of have a clean, dry erase board till the next week, and then we go back to the dry erase board and erase it again. If you have to live that way, you are always living up and down, in and out of grace. The grace of the gospel, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Folks, that's past, present, and future. I'm going to send tomorrow, and he's already paid for that sin that I'm going to send tomorrow. Isn't that beautiful? That I can just trust in Jesus today. Now, the question comes up, well, you've got to be careful. If you talk about grace in that way, then it's, people are just going to sin more, right? You ever had that thought, well, heck, if every sin's paid for, I'll just do it, confess it later, and I'll be good. That's, that's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. How shall we, who have died to sin, continue to live in it? He uses this Greek term. The only place he uses meganoite. It's like if you're in the South, gosh darn it, no way. How shall we who have died to sin continue to live in it? It's a very strong term. It's like that is just stupid thinking. 
Because what it's meant to do, it's meant to drive you, to motivate you to want to please God more because you're so overwhelmed by the grace of God. You're so overwhelmed by the truth of God that you can't help yourself just being joy-filled and spirit-filled today. Sometimes when I talk about we're going to do a series on the pure gospel, some of you may have this thought if you grew up in church a lot, uh, the gospel, okay, I got the gospel, okay, I made a decision, I'm good, it's boring. Teach me something I've never heard before. Folks, we should be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Think about if you understand the gospel today. There's no guilt today. There's no condemnation today. There's no sense of, I hope God loves me. When you go through something hard, you don't have to question theologically what you know to be true. You don't have to start thinking, why is God after me? Why is God getting me? Why is God not loving me? Why is God not serving the way I want him to serve? When you understand the gospel and you preach the gospel to yourselves every day, you live in amazing power and amazing confidence and amazing freedom. There is therefore now no condemnation. That word condemnation carries the idea of penal servitude. Let me read this quote to you. This is from F.F. F. Bruce, a great uh, pastor. Here's what he said. There is no reason why those who are in Christ Jesus should go on doing penal servitude as though they had never been pardoned and liberated from the prison house of sin. I believe the reason grace means so little to us is because we really don't think we're all that bad compared to everyone else around us. Let's look at verse 2. I, just, I don't even want to leave verse 1. I just want to like drop the mic and walk off the stage, you know? <laughs> God, it's amazing. If this doesn't get you revving, you may want to check your pulse. You might be dead. Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free or set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That little phrase, the law of the spirit of life, it's what we call a, a hapax legomena. It's something in the scriptures that's only used one time. It's Paul's little phrase for gospel. Yeah, I'm kind of putting the word pure in it, but it's kind of the way Paul talks about in this situation is the gospel. Look again what it says. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So Paul says there's two laws at work. Everybody in the world, doesn't matter what country you're from, what background you have, what color your skin is, everybody in the world fits in one of two laws. You're either going to do what the Spirit tells you to do, and the end is life. You have an option not to do what your flesh tells you to do. Or you're going to follow the law of the flesh, and the end road is death, And you have to do what the flesh tells you to do because the flesh is your master. See, everyone serves a master. The question is, is your master going to be your body? Which, by the way, doesn't separate us from the animal kingdom whatsoever. They just do what their body tells them to do. Are you above and are you superior because you're spirit-led, you're spirit-filled, you're spirit-empowered, and now you answer to a higher master instead of these lowly, earthly masters? He says these two laws are working in us. And matter of fact, to go to heaven, if you're going to try to do it around Jesus, not go through Jesus, but around Jesus, you've got to be perfect. Who in this room is perfect? Raise your hand if so far in your life, because your wife is going to bam if you do that, right? (laughs) Folks, you and I can't even keep the big 10, the 10 commandments. There's not one commandment that you've ever kept perfectly. Wait a minute, Pastor, I never murdered anybody. Jesus says if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder against them. You ever hated someone? Pastor, I've never stolen anything, really. A paperclip from work that wasn't for work duties. Uh, maybe a phone call at work that wasn't under your employee time. 
Maybe two minutes late, but you didn't clock out two minutes later at the end of the day. Did you go through the grocery store and grab some grapes and you really weren't going to buy any, but you ate some? You see what I'm saying? None of us have even kept the Big Ten, much less the 615. We are doomed. Thanks be to Jesus. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. You see, the law is not at fault. The law will lead you perfectly. The problem is you and I can't keep the law perfectly. And so, thanks be to God, you've got an option you wouldn't have had before this chapter. The option is you can follow a better master, a higher master, a more true master who brings life instead of death. You can follow Jesus. Anyone that has obeyed Jesus, I would say their life has never recovered. I, I've never gotten over the fact that Jesus died for me. That, that never gets old to me. I don't want to live the way I used to live. You know, sometimes you look back at the past, you think the glory days. Back in my day, we used to walk uphill both ways. We think of the glory days, right? The glory days weren't that good. Color TV is fun, right? Internet, that's good. You know, we like microwaves. Anybody want to cook without a microwave now? Anybody want to go without car and you want to get a horse and buggy today and kind of go home? It takes a few hours to get back home. You got to light some candles. You don't have any electricity. You want to have outdoor plumbing? The problem is not technology. The problem is not what's happening in the world with these people or this ruling. The problem is not what's happening in this country. The problem is my heart. I'm the problem. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Thanks be to God, who has done for me what I cannot do for himself. He says he came in the likeness of flesh. Jesus Christ never sinned, but he was in true flesh. He was true man and true God all the time. It's what the Bible theologically calls the hypostatic union of Christ, Philippians 2. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we, the sinners, might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That he came and did for me what I could never do for myself on my own strength. That is what we call grace. It's Jesus plus what? Nothing. It's just Jesus. Look at verse 4. In order. Here's the reason God's done this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's what I want you to get from verse 4. That the gospel is not just about justification. What do I mean by justification? Romans chapter 5 verse 1. You and I now have peace with God because we've been justified by faith. Okay? That means I can stand before God one day and not worry about being condemned because my condemnation was taken by Jesus in my place. What's true of Jesus is now true of me. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day, on Easter morning, what became true of that victory now becomes true of my victory. All right? So you've got Christmas, he's born. You've got Good Friday, he dies. You've got Easter Sunday, he's risen from the dead again. All of that now is on my account, and now I'm really rich, and before I was really poor. I have a really wealthy father. If you're the creator of the universe, he's got all land rights. Think about that. 
When you create something, you own it. He's created everything. He is the Father, and He loves to bestow, the Bible says, His riches upon those who trust in Him. So again, verse 4 is letting us know that the goal of the gospel is not justification. That's great. You're justified. The penalty of sin is taken away with. But the other side of the goal of, of, of 8.4 is this, that you and I would now walk in holiness. Justification and sanctification, that's walking in holiness, always go together in your Bible. Some people love to say they're justified. I made a decision when I was eight. I walked down an aisle. I said yes at a camp. But my life has never been about sanctification. The Bible does not know, please hear this, the Bible does not know a believer who has made a decision here and their life has never changed toward the gospel. That Christians grow, okay? That you and I should be more holy now than we were five years ago. That we should be growing in the fruit of the Spirit now more than we were last month. That you and I are getting closer to Jesus now. Not just knowing more about him, but we're becoming more like him. Justification and sanctification always go together. I love what John Stott said. God condemns sin in Christ so that holiness might appear in us. Matter of fact, the Holy Spirit in chapters 1 through 7, the Holy Spirit's talked about twice in seven chapters. The Holy Spirit's mentioned 20 times in chapter 8. Why do you think that is? Because you and I need a power that's bigger than us living inside of us so that we can do what we cannot do before. Spirit-empowered Christians. That's why I wore my white shoes. These are my Holy Spirit shoes right here. Because this is a Holy Spirit chapter, amen? I love the fact that it's not just about justification, it's about sanctification. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Another way of saying that, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom not to live the way I used to live. Freedom not to have to do what my body tells me to do. So I love Romans 5.1, therefore you now have peace because you've been justified by faith. And I love chapters Roman 8, therefore there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And I love Romans 8.4, now you and I walk by the Spirit. Justification, sanctification. One day when we get to heaven, I'll throw another big term at you, glorification. Amen? That's when we get the new bodies. So what's true of us in the past, the penalty of sin taken away, is now true of us in the present. There is therefore now no condemnation. Now we are being freed from the power of sin. That's a daily grind, okay? Hopefully I'm more holy now than I was last year. And one day we'll be freed from the presence of sin, which is what makes heaven heaven because Jesus is there and there's no sin there. You follow me? So justification, sanctification, glorification. That's the gospel. How in the world can we ever get tired of this? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch. We better never lose that word. A wretch like me. You know, everybody wants to change that. A person like me. A wretch like me. I once was what? Lost. What part of your salvation do you and I play? We got lost. But he saved me. He did for me what only he could pull off. So here's what Paul is saying. There are two types of people in the world. There are those who are not under condemnation and they are walking in the spirit. And there are those who are under condemnation and they are pushing the spirit out. That's it. Either you're walking by the spirit or you're not walking by the spirit. Either you're condemned or there's no condemnation. That's the only two types of people the Bible sees. 
You and I create all these other little categories. That's it biblically. I want to close with this. John chapter 8, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. The Pharisees, the religious people, the church people, they're trying to trip Jesus up. They're trying to trap him. And what they do, and I believe, I believe they planted a woman and a man having an extramarital affair. And here's why I think it was a plant. Because in order to bring a person into an accusation, you had to have at least two eyewitnesses. So think about this for a minute. There's a man and a woman in an extramarital affair, and they had to have at least two witnesses, eyewitnesses. So what are they doing while this is happening? It's very disturbing. They're watching this sin take place. Now, if they're watching this sin take place, they see the woman. Who else do they see? The man. Who is brought to Jesus for condemnation? Just the woman. It wasn't about the law. It wasn't about the sin. It was about entrapping Jesus. So they bring this woman to Jesus in John chapter 8. They throw her down. They start picking rocks up because the law says that they should stone her. The man's not around. And Jesus says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And one of the gospel writers says that from the oldest to the youngest, the rocks started to drop. Because I believe when you get older, you start to realize, well, I'm not without sin. It's the younger folks that says, yeah, I've never sinned in my life. (laughs) And the rocks started to drop. And then Jesus looks at this woman. He says, is there no one to condemn you? There's the word, condemn you. She looks around and says, "No, no, my Lord, no one. He says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, that's justification. Then he says, sanctification. Go and sin, what? No more. Don't just tell people you made a decision and you're saying, I'm a Christian. Now go and live without sin. Fight the good fight. It's not that Christians don't sin. We stumble on the path daily, don't we? But we get back up and we cling to Jesus again because we know that he's worth it and the gospel's worth it and we live it again. Justification, neither do I condemn you. Sanctification, go and sin no more. I I wish I could have seen that woman's face. The only one that had the power to condemn her that day was who? Jesus. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now, go get sanctified. Go live better. Stop sinning. You follow me, church? Well, this is just the introduction of what we're going to be doing the next seven weeks. But I want you to take Romans 8 this week. I want you to take the book of Romans if you have the time. Make the time. Just read it. Okay? Just let it saturate your heart. We're going to jump in this. And, and let me tell you, we, we're going to be hopefully better Christians at the end of this series than we are right now. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the power of your word. That there is therefore now no condemnation on Brad Thomas. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. I can't fight it. I can't be good enough, Father. I am a wretched person, just like all my friends listening right now. And Lord, I pray that we would live the pure gospel every day, that when we start to condemn ourselves, when we start to live under guilt, under duty, maybe under the way we were raised in a church, that we would start to realize that it's Jesus plus nothing. Lord, give us the spiritual, mature receptivity to be able to receive grace daily. And I pray, Father, that we live such attractive lives that masses of people in Austin, Texas would be drawn to the pure gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.